Dr. Lasana Harris. What's your revolution? What's your revolution? What's your revolution? Just being here. <laughs> just being here. I didn't have to be here. I'm a statistical anomaly, right? So just being here is a revolution. Can I have attention for a moment? What's good, revolution? Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. A show for men and the people who love them. Where we discuss how men can revolutionize themselves, find the revolution within themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's good, revolutionaries? What's good, revolutionaries? Ah, I love you. I love you. I miss you. I hope that you are doing well. As we here in the States and places across the globe, as we've said so many times on this show, we've seen a little bit of a light. I want to give a shout out to all those people who have not made it to this point that have lost their lives uh, we remember you and we want to make sure that your light continues to shine within us within our countries within our communities that your hopes and dreams that your fears that your joys carry on and so as we open up as we find ourselves in community again as we find spaces let's make sure that those of us who are still here that we provide the time that as we used to say when i was growing up that we pour out a little bit for those who didn't make it here with us that we give credence and and life to those who are not here with us i hope as you find this time of opening up revolutionaries that you've done some reflection we've had a almost a year and four months to think about who we are, who we are as individuals, who we are as communities, who we are as people. And so as I hope as you move out in spaces that some of the dust <laughs> that you carried with you into the pandemic, you have been able to brush off or that you're working to brush off because what we're seeing around the world, what we're seeing here in America is that we're still sitting in our tribes, that we are coalescing in conversations that are not equitable, that we're still staying in spaces that don't allow us to bring ourselves together in community. And I am hoping that we can find a way to come together, revolutionaries, to have those conversations that galvanize us together because we need to move forward. We can't stay in our tribes. We must create new tribes. And one of the things that revolutionaries, you know, you hear me talk about so much is when I went to Green Run High School back in the late 80s. And yes, you know, here again, talking about Green Run High School, we were a mixed tribe. And even today, 32 years later, I can call on my Filipino friends. I can call on my Asian friends. I can call on my black friends. I can call on my white friends. And still today, those conversations, though we may be on different sides of the camp, we can still come together. And that's what I'm hoping for people is that, that we can find ways to come together, to have conversations that from different points of view, but allow us to hear each other, to have collegial conversation that galvanizes us as community. So I wish you well as we open up after this pandemic, but remember, we still have to, we still have to reach back, lift as we climb, and as I move the conversation, revolutionaries, I want to I want to remember it's been a year. It's been a little over a year now since our brother George Floyd was taken from us. And I began to think. How could something like that happen? But, we, you know, with social media and the onset of the 24 hour news cycle, we are seeing things like this happen time and time and time again. 
And I begin to think about the eyes of Derek Chauvin. How could this person sit on his neck for that long? How could he not think of this man and his life as human? And that's the key, revolutionaries, is that how do we get to this point where we dehumanize people? How do we get to this point in social cognition where we think that someone is less than and they're not human? I began to think of the history of what happens in this country and that my ancestors were not seen as human. They were seen as chattel. And their lives were taken for granted. And, and that is just a minuscule point of view here, revolutionaries. When I say that their lives were taken for granted, that is a simplification of that. And so I wanted to have this conversation about where we are as a global citizenry. And I said, who can I have this conversation with? And I began to do my research. And there are luminaries in this world. And one of those people is Dr. Lasana Harris. I wanted to invite him to the show to talk about his work on social cognition, dehumanization. This brother is doing amazing things over in the UK with his research and how we think about people's lives and how it impacts law and policy and economics. Think about that. When we dehumanize people, right, we, we actually create policy to inhibit them. And so I wanted to have this conversation. So, Dr. Harris, thank you for coming to the What's Your Revolution show. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. Uh, wonderful. Wonderful. As I said, Dr. Harris, you're over in the UK. Before we jump into the show, talk about what it's been like for you as a person of color, you know, in the UK during the pandemic. How has that been for you and your community? And how have you all been able to kind of come together during this time? Yeah, I think the pandemic has been tough for everybody. Um, and at least in my lifetime, I don't think there's been an event where everybody in the world has been impacted, no matter who you are, how much money you have, what society you're in, we've all been affected. And so having a moment to reflect in that has been interesting for me personally, because Oftentimes, when bad things happen in the world, they tend to happen to specific groups of people, specific types of people. But here for the first time, I think something was affecting everyone. And that, I believe, presents us with an opportunity for growth and an opportunity for change. Unfortunately, the old structures that have been in place for centuries have also influenced who got affected. So in the US and here in the UK, People of color have been disproportionately affected by this virus. Um, the death rates have been higher here in the UK as well. Now that we have vaccine rollout, people of color reluctant to get vaccinated, meaning that they're still at risk. And so a lot of the conversation has been around why is there this disproportionality in the UK? Um, and in the UK, unlike in the US, people bury their head in the sand a lot and pretend as if these structural inequalities don't exist. So finding an answer is really a motivated reasoning exercise to find an answer that's not structural inequality. And so the kind of mental arithmetic I've heard politicians go through and, and different people in the media trying to explain this disproportionality has been really fascinating for me as a researcher of human behavior. And so, yeah, we've been hit as hard as, as everywhere else. Um, 
our death rates have been really high and it's been really tough, especially because a lot of this could have been avoided, right? Different decisions could have been made. Um, action could have been taken a lot sooner. Um, people could have been better educated. But all of those feelings, which just reflect the feelings we see in human society in general, have led to the fact that there's been tons of suffering. So it's been a rough time, but like you said at the beginning, there's a glimmer of light, right? We're seeing the end potentially. Yes, thank you for that. And yes, that glimmer, that, that glimmer of hope. But oftentimes, oftentimes in collective history, Dr. Harris, you know, my first degree is in history and uh, I, I love being able to go to go back and look at the decisions that have been made throughout history that have impacted groups of people and, and particularly have impacted groups of people that look like us. And thinking about that, I, I, I actually want to just jump into kind of uh, an operationally defining because often these decisions that have been made and we've seen decisions that you said that could have been made earlier and different for groups of people is because of how we look at or how we consider people uh, and how we how we think of them. And so I just want to I just want to couch this conversation right now, Dr. Harris, in really as a part of your research and really define how we this 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 term of dehumanization. So could we get that definition? What does it mean what does dehumanization, dehumanization mean? And, and then I'll ask the next question. Sure. So if you think about the term human, that really does two things. It's a biological category of animal on this planet, right? Human beings as a species, homo sapiens. But it's also a psychological concept in that human isn't defined by biology it's defined by what we would call perception in our minds we have an idea of what a human is and therefore there are things that aren't human that we treat as human right think about your pets for instance and there are things that are human that we don't consider human and that's really what dehumanization is so it's this failure to consider another human being as human now what does that mean well it means a number of different things for different people. On the one hand, there's the traditional view of dehumanization, which is basically name calling. So if I liken you to vermin or animals or rats or what have you, that's dehumanizing in the sense that I'm comparing you or treating you as if you were something other than a human being. But that definition of dehumanization is really hard to study ethically in the laboratory. Um, because we don't do unethical things to our participants, at least we try not to, um, since Tuskegee and those other events. Right. And that leads us to a slightly different view of dehumanization, which is the one that I use in my research. And that view basically says that you can dehumanize someone by simply failing to consider what's on their mind. Mm -hmm. Now, that seems to be a very light touch way of thinking about something as horrific as dehumanization. But if you think it's true for a minute, it makes complete sense. So if I'm looking at an object, what's different when I look at that object versus when I look at a human being is that when I look at the human being, in addition to perceiving the person with my eyes, so getting sort of 
sensory information, visual information, auditory information, olfactory information, right? What the person smells like, all of that stuff. I do a trick that's called a mental inference. And I make an inference or a guess about what's in the person's mind. When I look at an object, I don't do that. And so what really separates human beings psychologically as a psychological concept from everything else is this additional inference process where I'm guessing what's in somebody's mind. And so if I'm failing to do that, then philosophically, by definition, I'm dehumanizing because I'm not considering what that person's thinking. Now, this lighter touch view of dehumanization has all of the horrible implications that we are used to dehumanization having. So, for instance, morality is only relevant if somebody's suffering. If I don't think about somebody's mind, I don't recognize their suffering, it's okay to do immoral things towards them. So it still gets you the sort of human atrocity stuff. Thinking about somebody's mind can also trigger things like empathic concern, right, where I actually have a motivation to try to help them. So again, if I fail to consider your mind, I'm less likely to engage in these kinds of pro-social behaviors towards you. And then finally, thinking about somebody's mind makes us self-aware. It makes us worry about, well, what is that person thinking about? And that kind of reputation management or impression management is really important because it drives good behavior, civil behavior. So if I want a complete stranger to think positively of me, I follow social norms around politeness and graces. And that's simply because I worry that that person may think of me negatively. But if I'm now dehumanizing that person, there's no concern about how I may appear to that person. Just as I have no concern how my computer thinks about me when I'm interacting with it. And so this idea of getting inside someone's head is actually a really powerful concept because it, it nicely illustrates how the category human in our minds is this very rich and, and complex concept that at least our research demonstrates people can regulate. I can fail to consider another human being as such. So that's how we define dehumanization. Dr. Harris, thank you for that. You know, as I sit here and listen to you, the the one the one constant thought was I have I was like we dehumanize people every day literally we can dehumanize people every minute of the day and you don't particularly and and, and tell me if I'm wrong Dr Harris you don't particularly have to be a bad person to dehumanize other people exactly and and that's a really good point so this everyday dehumanization has some benefits in some cases, right? So let's talk about the, the positive side of it. Let's assume that I am a physician in a hospital during this COVID pandemic, and I'm surrounded by human suffering. If I did the human thing and considered the minds of all of these people suffering, that's going to overwhelm me emotionally. It's going to make it less likely that I can do a good job of saving these people's lives because I'm so overwhelmed by all this human suffering. So if I simply shut out their minds, I stand a better shot of actually helping them, of engaging in behaviors that requires all of the mental space that would otherwise be taken up by thoughts about their suffering. So in a medical context, dehumanization can be beneficial if I'm treating someone. Now, it's not always the case that I want to dehumanize in a medical context when I've just met my patient and I'm trying to diagnose their illness 
I have to get inside of their head exactly. to know exactly how they're suffering. Um, I have to show some empathy towards them or else we won't have a good relationship, doctor to patient. After the surgery or whatever treatment, I need to get inside of their head to check in their recovery. So it's not the claim that I need to constantly dehumanize. But when I'm slicing you open or I'm intubating you, right, thinking about your mind doesn't really help me in that setting. It actually makes things worse. And so I think evolutionarily we've preserved this ability to dehumanize because it can have benefits, right? Mm -hmm. But it also leads to the dark side of stuff, right? There are also cases where if I'm shutting out somebody's mind, it's because perhaps I want to use them as a means to an end. So I'm treating them in an instrumental way. So we've done a lot of research demonstrating that in economic contexts, right, people don't think about other human beings' minds, right, because it's irrelevant. The economic doctrine is self-interest, right? What matters is how best I can maximize my own profit. Sometimes I'm the better shot of doing that if I fail to think about somebody's mind. So if I'm a big multinational corporation, and I have decision-making power in there, and I know I can squeeze a 10% bigger profit margin by having my employees with that extra bit, right, or taking away some of their benefits. The smart economic decision is to take away those benefits, right, make them work harder because my job depends on that profit margin. And so in that context, I'm doing something that's completely rational but it requires dehumanization to pull it off. Because if I worried about what is my employee's experience when I take away those benefits, so I make them work on the weekends, or I make them work long hours, I might be reluctant to do so. And so dehumanization is a really interesting phenomenon because as you said, it's something that most of us are doing every day just to get by. And depending on the situation that we're in, the particular roles we have, um, the goals that we may have, these things can determine whether I should think about your mind or I shouldn't. Wow. Wow. Dr. Harris, I mean, I'm sitting here because I'm, I'm thinking about, lead, as you said, leaders of multinational, multi-global organizations. I, I even think about our, you know, our CEO at Camelback and how having to make these decisions for the larger organization and to try to make them as, as empathetic as possible. But understanding that as an organization we have a we we have a constituency that we have to work for and work through and so making decisions that will impact not only us as a staff but our our larger goal is to impact the people that we work for and that the the, the money that we actually have that flows to them and, and making these crucial decisions it's so interesting because I came into this conversation you know, and, and done a lot of reading and maybe because that's what I've been queued up because I, you know, I spend too much time listening to MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. I'm, I'm trying. So I'm listening to all this, this rhetoric from all sides. And so I'm coming into this conversation thinking about dehumanization as this really as this nefarious thing. And I still think as, if we, as this nefarious thing, but there are some good mechanisms to it, even though it doesn't feel like I still got this icky feeling inside of me when we think about dehumanization, because I think about, you know, and here's the vulnerability. I, I think about ways or where I have dehumanized people as I, as I think about how I walk past a person who who is asking me for money on the street who may be impoverished. And if you don't mind, if, you, if uh, I just want to tell you a little story about that, how I dehumanized a kid one day in New Orleans and my beloved 
New Orleans, I was walking down the street coming from an event that uh, my organization had put on. I was walking with some colleagues. We were having great conversation. And this kid walked up, right? He was, he wasn't dressed impoverishly, if that's, if, if that's a way. And excuse me, revolutionaries, you know, I'm, I'm trying to convey this in a manner that um, shows what was happening that day. So he wasn't dressed like we, you know, how we might stereotypically consider someone who's impoverished. But the way that he came at me, Dr. Harris, was my first inkling was like, he's about to ask me for money. And so for many of us who have been on the streets anywhere in San Francisco, anywhere in, anywhere in the country in the last 10, 15, 20 years, you know, when someone comes to you, you don't know, you're in, at least I am in this protective mind and I'm waiting for them to ask me for something. So Dr. Harris, my, my first my, my first action, I want to say inclination was to say, hey, brother, I don't have any money, right? I, and, and, and literally, Dr. Harris, guess what? I always have money, right? I always, but I, ha I have gotten to the point where like, no, nah, I don't have money because I've been, I have been uh, socialized or discouraged or whatever to say, you know what? No, I don't have any money. And you would never guess, Dr. Harris, what the next comment was. He said, I, I don't. I don't need your money. And he said, what I need in this moment is not your money. I need someone to listen to me. And so in that moment, I was like, here's the guy that talks about equity. Here's the guy that talks about black masculinity and, and, and us being open and honest about who we are as people. I've just dehumanized this young brother because he came at me in a, in a certain way that I'm used to asking for money. And I'm like, I'm not giving you money. That's, that's my stuff. And he said, I don't need this. I need someone to listen to me. And so then, then Dr. Corpru, the psychologist kicks in and says, okay. And so my friends are looking at me like, are you okay? Now this, you know, I'm on the streets, but I sit and have this conversation with this doc, this conversation with him, Dr. Harris. And his brother started talking about how his girlfriend, you know, he was 21, how his girlfriend had cheated on him. They had a, a, a child together. He was heartbroken. And I don't know, revolutionaries, if you remember, if you remember that first time that your heart was broken, right? That, that first heartbreak is tough. That first, because it's like, wait, 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 this is, this, this feels worse than being stabbed or something. So he was heartbroken. She had stolen something from him and and he had no one to talk to. And so we sat on the street and we talked for about a half hour and my, my colleagues were waiting for me. And eventually I was his brother, I've got to go, but here's my number. And I, I we, you know, we gave each other a hug, but I realized in the moment, in those initial moments that if I, if that I had dehumanized him and if he had never said anything else, what, what might've happened? And so uh, that's the story. And, and I, I, I think about that, like we dehumanize every day and there's work to do around that, Dr. Harris, you know, and, and so I, my question to you is in those moments, right, how do we even decipher that we're dehumanizing someone and in those moments, course correct? Yeah, I think your story wonderfully illustrates quite a few points um, that are worth noting. The first is that you made a prediction about this person before you even had the interaction. And that's what we do. As we go through the world, 
We're making predictions about what's likely to happen. That's a wonderful way to ensure survival, right? Because if you had made the prediction that this guy was dangerous, it's good to know that before something dangerous happens, right? It increases your chances of survival. And our brains are a big predictive machines, right? They're constantly generating predictions about what's likely to happen. The question then becomes, well, where do those predictions come from? What informs those predictions? And the other thing you said that is absolutely true, right? It's a socialization process. Depending on the society in which we live and the experiences that we've had, those inform what those predictions are likely to be. So if I've been approached in the street countless times by people begging for money, and I'm in a roughly similar situation, that prediction is going to kick in and say, here's another person coming to ask you for money. And interestingly, that's how stereotyping works as well, right? So I don't necessarily need the experiences when it comes to stereotyping, but if there's a narrative in my culture about certain types of people, then I'm going to rely on those stereotypes if I am about to have an encounter with them. So that's the first part of it that gets us into trouble. It's this prediction. What we have to then do is double check. And that's the really difficult part. So if I'm in a rush, I'm not going to double check. I'm running an autopilot. If I'm preoccupied, right? So if I'm thinking about other stuff, I'm not going to check, right? I'm not going to double check. And there are some really amazing studies in the psychology literature from like the 1960s. Um, around a phenomenon that's called the bystander effect, which really nicely illustrates this, right? The story goes, they had a bunch of theologians, so these were religious folks, and they had them think about a uh, sermon about the Good Samaritan, which is all about helping. And then they told the theologians, oh, we've made an error, we have to get out of this room now, but we can continue this experiment on the other side of campus. So if you could quickly hurry over to that address, while thinking about your sermon, that would be awesome. And these goodly religious folk ran out of the building. And in the alleyway outside of the building, there was a guy lying there slumped over, moaning. And the experiment was simply measuring to see how many of them would stop to help. Now, these are goodly religious people thinking about helping. Very few of them would stop to help. So that really nicely illustrates it's not about your moral state, it's not about how good or bad you are. But if you're preoccupied, if you're in a rush, right, these things can get in the way. And so for these theologians, right, it never registered to them that that person needed help, presumably. And that's what's happening to lots of us as we engage in our everyday dehumanization. We're just trying to get through the day. <laughs> like there's so much crap going on, we're just trying to get through the day. So when these opportunities present themselves, we're going to go with our predictions. We're going to be an autopilot, right? We're not going to bother to interrogate it. And so the way you break out of that cycle is by stopping and thinking, right? Taking the time to question that prediction, to say, is this really the case? Um, and we're not always going to do that, mainly because we're not motivated to like, what's in it for me to stop and think? But there is a way you can do it. And the last thing you said there, I think really nicely illustrates that way. I don't think you would have stopped even after the guy spoke to you if you weren't a psychologist. So having the goal in mind to be someone that helps people with their psychological difficulties, the minute that guy said, I need to talk to somebody, that triggered your goals around being a psychologist. And so that part of yourself took over. And now you're better able to 
stop and put those initial predictions aside and say, well, hang on, here's a moment where I can be of use, right? Where I can do something that's consistent with my view of myself as a psychologist. And so if we put people in situations where either their personal goals, their work goals, whatever it might be, become more salient or relevant, we're more likely to behave differently in those situations if that behavior is now consistent with those goals. Mm. So we've been looking at a variety of strategies to try to get people to break out of the sort of spontaneous dehumanization we often engage in. And one of the most effective ones we've discovered is exactly that, right? If I can foreshadow people's personal goals, their work goals, their ideal sense of self is a nice way of putting it, then that can often step in and have real impact in the situation and overcome dehumanization and other types of social bias. So I think your story is a really wonderful illustration of the kind of research we're trying to do to figure out how these processes work and how we can short circuit them when necessary. Right. You know, Doc, I, I what I hear in this and in its, you know, in its most parsimony, if we break it down as as we used to say back at Tulane in this most parsimonious form is that how do we see the good in everybody? You know, even in those moments when we're busy, even in those moments when you know the 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 heuristics the heuristics take over when the you know uh, but we need the algorithm in our brain. The heuristics have taken over. How do we stop and say, put in the heuristics, and this is the nerd in me, you know, to say, remember, see the good in this interaction or see the good in what people are trying to do. I, I began thinking about it as you were talking because uh, a lot of your research also has an impact on how we create policy and law. Right. I, I keep thinking about and, you know, this this controversial topic that we've heard over the last five, not even the last five years, it was just more amplified in the last administration about building a border wall and here in the country to to basically hold out uh, Latinx folks, particularly Mexican people, uh, Central American folks from coming to America. And that we've created law and policy, that we've created a, a political narrative around why the why. And I, I say this and I'm going to say these because that's how it's been. That's the dehumanization term. Why these people should not be entered into our or allowed into our country. We have we we've created policy and narrative around the dehumanization of these people. They're thugs. They're rapists. They're killers. Um, they're taking our jobs, right? All of these dehumanization tactics. And so it's, it's really interesting. How do we overcome, right? Th there it is. And I think that I already know the answer, I think, but I would love to hear you put it into these colorful terms. Override the, the, the thoughts that we need to create policy that keeps people out from dehumanizing them and keeping people out knowing that if we tr if we look at the good in them, we should be inviting them in. Question mark. Yeah, I think I think narratives are really powerful, um, and the narratives that have been constructed around different groups of people are really, in my opinion, much responsible for how we treat different types of people. Mm -hmm. So there are many different ways you could think about a Mexican immigrant. Let's take that example. There's one train of thought that's consistent with the view that 
some people on the right have been pushing, which is what you've described. They're dangerous. They're here to take our jobs. There's another view of them that they're exceptional people. Like they made it all the way here under very grave circumstances. It's not like they boarded a flight and ended up at an airport, right? Which is what we all do to travel. Some of these people have traveled thousands of miles and found a way to be here. That's remarkable resilience. That's an exceptional human being. That's a valuable person in my society. But you never hear that narrative around immigrants. Now you hear it around expats, which is another thing we've created to separate immigrants who we value from immigrants who we don't. But all immigrants are valuable, right? Like, and so the narrative that we've constructed is really what's doing a lot of the dangerous work. And immigrants in particular is a, a very um, triggering topic for lots of cultures around the world. I yes, mean, here in the UK, we basically shot ourselves in the foot with Brexit because of arguments around immigrants. These Eastern Europeans are coming and it's the same thing. They're coming to take our jobs. They're dangerous. Again, remarkable people if they can make it this far, right? And so I think immigrants is an easy touchstone because evolutionarily speaking, immigrants has been something that has always been um, seen as potentially dangerous to us as a species, not because they're coming to kill us and take our jobs, but immigrants actually brought with them novel pathogens, diseases that we didn't have in our community. And so anyone new that's coming into our group is potentially threatening for that reason. That's, to some extent, wired into us based on our evolutionary history. So we live in a world where pathogens are coming from anybody these days, right? It wasn't Chinese people who brought coronavirus over. Right? It probably came in the lungs of, of good old Americans and British people. But that narrative taps into these old evolutionary mechanisms and really gets people going. It gets the blood boiling and people become really passionate about these issues around things like immigration. Passionate about it. Passionate about it. It, it, yeah. it, it is yeah, yeah. it's quite interesting because as, as you were talking, I'm thinking about our you know our native and indigenous populations here who are thinking, you're exactly right, Dr. Harris. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. Immigrants came <laughs> immigrants came to our land and brought pathogens and killed off half half of our nations and then took our land and are now saying and are now saying well, what did rick santorum say the other day well i don't really know you know so many native and indigenous people in this country what <laughs> right and so it is really interesting and, and again the dehumanization of native and indigenous people in in, in our country you know and, and as we think about that right that right the narrative that had been created about the people who were here first and how Settlers came and indoctrinated a population and now have pushed them out and then created this narrative around did you hear, almost to say, look, you don't even exist. Your history does not exist in this country. It is this history. And we are going to basically obliterate the history of your culture. And it, it is so interesting to me. But what I love what you said, Dr. Harris, is this. This premise around if we change the narrative, right, if we change this narrative, and I, and I think about Dr. Andre Perry and his amazing work now, the senior Brookings, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, we've always had these conversations around how do we change the narrative around black men, right, men of color uh, around the globe and particularly here in the United States, but how do we change that narrative 
I love what you said. If we think about this, the, the, the resilience of Central American Mexican folks to come, right? To think about this, right? To, to literally walk, right? Bus, caravans of people, right? You think if I had to, if I had to walk to the next city, I'm complaining. <laughs> you're right right <laughs> yeah. if I, uh, literally dr harris my frat brothers and i we ride from we we rode from one day from chesapeake to north carolina which is about 35 40 miles and i'm like this is a long way right take me back and we're on a bicycle so think about this you're walking in caravans for thousands of miles but the narrative is is that you're dangerous right instead of saying that these are resilient these are resilient people. And this is the type of person that I might want to employ because we also don't talk about that. Dr. Harris is that, you know, immigrants, right. Have basically helped to fulfill, fulfill this country and build up this country. We're thinking about the, the worker shortage that we're seeing here in the United States. I'm sure that you may be experiencing in the UK is that many of the low wage jobs, why prices are so high around the globe? Because many of the low wage jobs that have been filled have been have been done by immigrants who are willing to take less money than Americans and and and, and Brits because they were like, I, I'm too good to do this job. Well, guess what? Our immigrants were not too good to do this job. They were resilient, working hard. I, I remember after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, who who rebuilt New Orleans? The Hondurans rebuilt New Orleans. New Orleans is the second largest Honduran population in the world. We don't talk about that. And so I, I love that you brought that narrative in is that if we shift the narrative around people, if we see the good, it is a wonderful thing. Then we have this ability to hopefully in the moment to say, I'm going to treat you like a human because basically I love my pit bull sauce so much that I will have a conversation with her ultimately knowing after 14 years that she has never talked back to me ever, but I will love her, pay insurance for her, walk her, feed her, right? Let her go outside and play with the kids as, as, as if she were human. But when this guy walks up on me on the street, right, I'm going to assume that he wants some money and I'm going to push him away. That's problematic, Dr. Harrison. That, that's problematic on my part. Um, so it, it, I think about this and, and as we you know think about knowing right from wrong. And I know part of your, your work is really around the cognition of thinking about right, making better decisions right from wrong. And I know my revolutionaries are asking this because I know they're doing the hard work on themselves, right? They're asking this question, what's your revolution? How do we get to this point of making more right decisions than wrong decisions from a cognitive perspective? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting question. Um, first of all, I think as a psychologist researching these things, one of the things I try to do is not to think about things in very valent terms. So I think everything has the potential to be good or bad. It depends on how you use it. Um, and so every decision that I make has potential benefits, but there are perhaps drawbacks as well. And depending on where I sit, I can view the decision as a, a right or a wrong decision. So. If my daughter comes and she's four years old and she wants another candy bar, right? If I do the morally right thing and I say, no, you can't have another candy bar, it's bad for you. I'm a demon in her eyes, right? So, so it's not as simple as, as, it's not black and white, it's not right and wrong. 
In terms of making um, more morally good decisions, I think what really matters is, is foregrounding human suffering. And as human beings, because we can make these predictions about what's likely to happen, I can know that I know that human suffering is difficult to deal with, right? There are some of us who enjoy witnessing suffering, but that's a really small percentage of the human population. For most of us, that's really unpleasant and really uncomfortable. And so if human suffering is foregrounded, that has the potential to drive more morally good decisions. But the suffering isn't really foregrounded because of mechanisms like dehumanization. And so the question then becomes, how do we get past it? And it comes back to simply considering that person's mind. And for me, that's always the answer. So if I want to do the morally right thing, I should think about how everybody feels in this situation, not just how it benefits me or my group. Now, there's one argument that says, well, that's not a wise thing to do because then I might be putting myself at a disadvantage or my group at a disadvantage. So if we let all of these immigrants in, they really might take away our jobs and therefore our low-paid low workers who were born here won't necessarily be able to get them. And I think that's a bit of a, a straw argument because ultimately what we want to do is reduce human suffering. That's why we have moral codes baked into our society. And so it doesn't really matter um, whether I see a short-term drawback to my group or my country or my city because these people are here. In the long run, getting rid of the human suffering is going to have massive benefits. Massive benefits. And I think that approach is, is really what's going to help us. But you never hear people thinking like that. You don't hear people talking like that because I think we're so confined to thinking about us and our sort of close community and nothing further, as if we're not part of a, a global landscape. Right. And that brings me back to coronavirus, right? Which is why I say it had huge potential because here's a, an instance where everybody's suffering, right? It's not just my group being disadvantaged. We're all being disadvantaged. But if I don't do the right thing in my community, that disadvantage is going to affect my community and every other community, right? So I don't engage in the right type of mitigation behaviors to stop the spread of the virus. Guess what? We're all going to suffer in my right. community and beyond. And that's not just true of coronavirus. We live in a, a globalized world where we're all interconnected. And so what happens in Japan or Bhutan or South Korea affects us here sitting in our homes. But we haven't really conceptualized that, I think. No, as, as no, not at all. We don't think about things in that way. We tend to think very local. And if you think very local, then these arguments seem to have merit, when in fact they're very spurious arguments. So I encourage people to think about reducing human suffering in general. And if that's your first thought, is this a way of reducing suffering, you'll usually make the morally right decision. I, I love that. And, and thank you for putting that, like thinking about how our decisions, <laughs> even even at the most mind, the, mo the most uh, micro levels, have to think about how am I creating or mitigating suffering with my decisions? And I even as you were talking, I'm thinking about the decisions that I make to engage with my mother and father. Right. When when my mother is really saying to me, I just want some time with you. And I'm saying I'm too busy. 
So in, in my in my mindset after this conversation, I think that I'm dehumanizing my mother because I'm not taking into consideration her mind that, hey, you're my son, you're my only child. I know you're busy. I know that you're out here trying to impact the world, but I'm 80. I don't know how long I'm going to be here, and I just want to spend some time with you, right? Maybe I've got some things on my mind that as a mother I don't tell you because I don't want to I don't want you to go off and worry about me, but I just want to spend some time with you. And so I have to think of I have to think about that is that how do I even in that how do I mitigate her suffering even though in that moment it may be I don't have enough time. I need to make that time. I need to humanize my mother more. I need to humanize my father more to give them time because ultimately at some point they may not be here. Indeed. Is that what you're saying? I want to make sure that I'm getting that concept right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and the other remarkable thing is, so as a species on planet Earth, we've been able to dominate because we have the ability to humanize, mm-hmm. right? This ability we have to consider other people to reduce their suffering is there because it helps us survive as a species, right? So. Oftentimes we describe human beings as sort of ultra cooperators, right? We're highly cooperative. I can meet a complete stranger and help that person. That's unheard of throughout the animal kingdom, right? That's really what makes us special as a species. And my feeling is if we lean into that, we'll be all right. right. It's brought us this far. But we have these other motives, right? These other goals, things that are associated with ourselves, right? We can be really self-interested at times. And certainly things like market economies promote self-interest. You have to to survive, right, to some extent. And so there's a real tension between our natural human tendency to have a broad church and our more recent requirements that we meet certain conditions to pay the rent, to put Mm -hmm. food on the table, to do all of the things we have to do in modern human society. And to be quite honest, there's no reason why those two things need to be in conflict, at least from my opinion, right? right. It's possible <laughs> to have your cake and eat it. But that's not the prevailing view. And when I start saying things like that, I sound like if I'm being too intellectual. But if you think about how the brain works, you think about how human beings evolve, we're built to do it, right? We're built to solve these big challenges we're facing around a warming planet, around pandemics, around continued poverty and devastation, around continued discrimination and violence. We are built to deal with all of these problems. Um, but we don't do it because we live in a modern society where that's not necessarily going to be towards our benefit. And so that's we don't think, think it, the we don't think it's our in. benefit. We don't think we don't think it's beneficial. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And that's where the policy bit comes in, because here's where I feel like the policymakers, they're the ones holding all the cards, because they can help re-engineer a society so that we don't think that it's not beneficial, right? So we can create a society through policy that would promote people engaging in those kinds of positive behaviors. But we've created societies to do the exact opposite. Um, exactly. And we haven't done this intentionally, I don't think. I think there have been a few powerful people over history and their ideas have held on and it's spread. And, right? So <laughs> one of the things I always remember thinking about, so I grew up in Trinidad in the Caribbean, and then I moved to the U.S. and I lived there for a long time. And I remember before I came to the U.S., 
I had this idea of America that was a TV idea, right? It's what the American media puts out. And I thought the entire country was like New York, for instance, right? So you think it's all beautiful and bustling and people are doing well. And then I got to Washington, D.C., and I saw homeless people sleeping 20 yards away from the entrance to the White House. And I was baffled. It just didn't make sense, right? That's not what America is supposed to be. Um, And I remember coming to the UK and thinking, well, these people enslaved my ancestors for centuries. They must all be filthy rich over here and seeing people suffering here as well. And so one of the things I had to learn is that it's not white people that's the problem, right? It's not Europeans that's the problem. It's not Americans. There are a small number of people who benefit extraordinarily from this greater human suffering. And we, as a, a as the rest of us, the remaining 99%, need to recognize that. I remember hearing a, a Chris Rock joke once, and he said, um, if poor people really knew the power they had, there'd yes. be riots in the yes. street. Yes. Right? Like, we're the majority of humans, and we're the ones that are in these systems trying to survive, inflicting suffering on each other. And a very small number of people are benefiting. And so that's really where I think the problems lie. And that's where we need to start making changes. And it has to come from the top. Societies are too big. There are millions of people in each country, right? It has to come from political leadership. We need to put pressure on our political leadership to do that. Yeah. But I'm getting beyond my area of expertise and into my wild opinion. So <laughs> there's nothing wrong. Thing. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Dr. Harris, I just appreciate this dialogue. I have learned so much and that's a part of that is a part of this podcast that I, I started this four years ago. Uh, selfishly because I wanted to be able to talk to luminaries like yourself that look like me who are doing revolutionary things in the world so I could have these conversations so I could go back and learn and be a fan of the show uh, thinking about you know Biggie's, Biggie's line you know I'm not only inclined I'm the what's your revolution president but <laughs> um, you know it is just amazing to hear and think about this as as my revolutionaries as you go out and thinking about how you can be better in the world how you can revolutionize your lives i think you need to think about what dr harris has just given us over the last 57 minutes uh, about how we need to see the good and if you're a policymakers in the world look at me if you're policymakers in the world we need to think about how we are creating policy that is inclusive that is equitable that thinks about how people are living and thinking and right and thinking about how to offset and mitigate people's suffering that is if i think about our ancestors dr harris that's what they thought about right they thought about community and galvanizing and coming together i think we need more of that i know that we need more of that so dr harris i thank you for the time but i need to make sure that i ask our signature question dr lasana harris what's your revolution just being here <laughs> just being here. I didn't have to be here. I'm a statistical anomaly, right? So just being here is a revolution. Mm. Mm. That might that might be the best that might be the shortest but best answer that we've had. Just being here. And you are look, just you being here today with us means that we have learned a great deal and hopefully that we can be better humans in the world dr harris i appreciate your time revolutions as i said as we are coming out there's a the, the the light is opening up a little bit lighter it's a little bit bigger 
I hope that you are taking time to reflect on this past year, but you're also setting your goals, that you're also asking your question, asking your question, asking yourself, how can I be revolutionary, not only for myself, but for your communities? How can you see the good in folks? How can you create opportunities for people to be their better versions of themselves? How can you see the better versions of yourself? I just remember this saying is that we are not, right? We are not the worst thing that we've ever done in life. Remember that, revolutionaries, as you move throughout your day. I love you. I love you. I love you. We will see you soon and always be able to answer what we think is the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? Take care. Have a great week, revolutionaries. What's your revolution? What's your revolution? What's your revolution? What's your revolution?